0: BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors.
1: Hello and welcome to the BAFTA podcast. My name's Dave Green and it's the day before the BAFTA Film Awards. From all over the world, filmmakers are flocking to London to find out who's won this year's many categories as judged by BAFTA members and juries. Previously on the podcast, we've had writers, producers, and directors illuminating what they do. But now's our chance to grab a coffee with some of the other vitally important people who make movies happen. If you ever wondered how you get to be a cinematographer, a makeup artist, or a visual effects supervisor, or what some of those jobs even mean, then pour yourself a pricey cappuccino and prepare to hear from some key people behind The Dark Knight, Lincoln, Les Miserables, Paranorman, and Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Let's start with Paul Franklin, a long-time collaborator with Christopher Nolan. He's worked on the Dark Knight trilogy and Inception.
2: He does visual effects, not special effects. Visual effects. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, it's actually the confusion between special effects and visual effects is quite common. Um, Most people outside of filmmaking just refer to it collectively as special effects. Inside film, they're two different departments. Visual effects is all about the uh, post-production, creating manipulating images that we've filmed and adding things to them special effects are the physical effects that actually occur on the day in front of the camera so exploding cars collapsing buildings uh, the batmobile is a special effect that's built by the special effects department
1: you've worked on four christopher nolan films three dark Knights uh, and an inception i mean how, how did how did that start and and i'm and particularly on on those kind of effects heavy films
2: i imagine he has to be quite quite closely involved I I started with Chris back in late 2003 which is when we started working on Batman Begins and at the time I was just in charge of the chunk of work that my company Double Negative was doing for that movie and there were several other companies involved but as the years went on and we uh, progressed through The Dark Knight and then on to Inception we took more and more of the work until eventually Chris asked me to just look after the whole thing and for Double Negative to do all the work and one of the reasons he did that was that he wanted a closer working relationship with the visual effects crew he didn't want to have us at arm's length which is the way that it works on a lot of films that visual effects is generally contracted out to independent companies it's not handled by the studio but in the old days back in the 50s and 60s the visual effects department would be part of the studio setup that was making the film. And Chris wanted to get back to that kind of way of working. And uh, so the idea was to bring me closer into uh, into the circle of uh, creative control, I suppose. And it worked out very well, particularly on Inception, where the visual effects are very much at the heart of the storytelling. I think that's one of the reasons why people... You know, twig that it's a visual effects film, whereas the Batman films, which actually make greater use of digital visual effects than Inception, you know, it's all pushed into the background. It's thrown away, is the term we actually use. That doesn't mean we're really rubbishing it, but we're just not making a big thing about it. It's part of the fabric of the universe. Whereas in inception you know you're very aware that something's going on when the street starts folding up or people start floating around in zero gravity the funny thing was that it actually put even greater scrutiny on what we were doing because the audience is immediately aware that something is going on and they're looking for the joins so what are the shots in Batman that people, people won't realise of uh, visual effects, or particularly, particularly in the new one? Well, obviously, a lot of our work is in creating the environment of Gotham City. We go to amazing locations. You know, we shot in Los Angeles, Pittsburgh and New York, as well as London, to create Gotham City. And we get a lot from the locations themselves, but we have to do a bit of work to extend that to give greater scale to the city. Uh, you know, extending the skylines, maybe changing the street layouts here and there. Obviously, most of the work goes into the action that we did. Uh, so, particularly the final chase sequence with Batman's uh, extraordinary helicopter uh, uh, vehicle, the the Bat, uh, and special effects built a fantastic working physical Bat which was mounted on a flatbed. Uh, car and a sort of big hydraulic crane we could race this up and down the streets but if it needed to take off and fly through the air and do more complicated maneuvers we handed it over to a computer generated version of the uh, of the bat so um, we you know we're always endeavoring to make a seamless blend between the practical and the digital version so that people never re- can never tell when you're looking at one and perhaps the other
1: who else are you working with in terms of the production team? I imagine so the production designer, the cinematographer.
2: Well, our closest relationship when we're actually shooting the film is with, uh, is with the cinematographer, Wally Fister, who's our director of photography. So we spend a lot of time liaising with the camera department. If for no other reason than we need to know what the cameras were doing, uh, all the technical data from the cameras when we're actually filming, so we can recreate things later on in the computer. But also we need to understand how Wally's going to light the shots the, uh, and the style of his camera work, you know, Every cinematographer has a distinctly different flavour to the way that the camera just moves through space. And capturing that, and recreating that, uh, emulating it, is very, very important in our work because we may have to create completely computer-generated shots they need to feel seamless with the, uh, both the technical aspects of the rest of the film, but also the, uh, the style, the creative style of it. But we're also working with stunts because they help us out, giving us lots of reference. Um, so, for instance, the shot in The Dark Knight Rises, where the Batpod, you know, Batman's extraordinary uh, motorcycle, uh, does a jump off a car transporter. Now, the real Batpod can't do that because it weighs about six, 700 pounds. It's a real functioning motorcycle, but it can't do a jump like that. What we did instead is we got together with stunts and then we actually staged a stunt jump with a uh, stunt rider on a dirt bike, a sort of uh, lighter weight motorcycle. But he was dressed as Batman. And so we performed that stunt pretty much as you see it in the film. And then we used the action of the motorcyclist to then drive the animation of our digital version of Batman. And it gives it that added level of reality. So it just rolls through pretty much unnoticed and people say, wow, how did they get the Batpod to do that? And so we did do it in reality, just not with the Batpod.
1: And the, the form that takes is that usually there's there's you or someone from Double Negative on the set. I mean, obviously talking to these people as it's happening, yeah. and then you're also getting. Are you getting the footage like literally as soon as it's been filmed, or?
2: Uh, no, what happens is that we get the footage um, a little bit later on because everything that's filmed has to go through the editorial process and. Uh, Chris will decide on what take he wants to use and so we won't necessarily get it straight away we'll, there'll be a, uh, uh, an editorial process which may last several weeks or months before eventually the work is turned over to us in the case of that shot however there was only one take we only did the stunt once so uh, we were able to get that pretty early on because there was no, no other choice to uh to use and it worked really well I mean is it the case that lots of directors like, like to build up a team and, and continue working with that team or, or I mean Crystal Nolan is, is the one you've had most experience with all filmmakers like to uh, be able to repeat the process if they can you know if, they've, if something's worked out for a filmmaker they'll want to do it again the next time unless they specifically want to go and explore different areas not many filmmakers have the luxury of being able to do that which really comes down to the budgets they can command to bring back the same collaborators uh, every time you know, we're, not, we're not forced into working with Chris again I think uh, when you get the call uh, you're just working out how fast you can say yes Are there any, shot,
1: any, any shots you haven't already mentioned that are particular
2: personal favourites of yours that you look back and go and, yeah that's good um, On The Dark Knight Rises the shots that I was uh, really I mean I was very proud of the whole film but the things which really stood out for me are um, the sequence where the football stadium is uh, destroyed and then we see the wider destruction that's going on through Gotham City and that was uh, the result of meticulous planning and creative process where we were designing those shots for a long time, very very elaborate large scale live action shoot We had eleven thousand extras in the Pittsburgh Steelers Stadium on the day in uh, in Pittsburgh, and uh, you know complex pyrotechnics, real NFL stars running along the field. Um, it was uh, an extraordinary day, and then the uh, the visual effects part of it was incredibly complicated, creating that destruction, making it look real and yet timing it precisely to fit with the live action and not making it look contrived and then when the scene opens out to see the whole city with the explosions going off in the streets what we had there was absolutely fantastic photography to work with and you you look at the, the raw elements and you think well if i just do my job properly we're going to have a great shot here and that was uh, particularly satisfying because they're quite powerful shots i think as a result
1: I'm here with Andy Nelson and I've got you down as sound re-recording mixer on Les Miserables and John Warhurst, supervising sound editor. Congratulations on your nomination. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Could you describe briefly uh, what what it is that you do on a film? Oh my goodness. So
3: when the film's been filmed and edited, Uh, the last thing they do is put the soundtrack together. And uh, John actually starts a lot earlier than I do, but for for, for my part, I'm handling the sound levels to do with the... In this case, it was to do with the vocals from the set and balancing that in with the orchestra tracks that were recorded. And, uh, And then a partner that I worked with, Mark Patterson, handled all the sound effects. And so we just worked through scene by scene, song by song, blending all these elements together... Until everyone, the director, the producer, everybody's happy with the end result. And that's the soundtrack that goes into the movie theatres.
1: So, so it's like when, when, when you, you see these uh, people, record producers with an enormous desk of faders and things like that, and, and a screen full of coloured blocks, and you're moving those around. Like, it's, it's, it's that sort of setup. It's exactly like that, yes. We
3: hide behind a huge console. Uh, looks like the flight deck of a 747. And uh, I pretend to know what I'm doing on it, but, you know, I skate by. But, but you're, John, you're
1: on, in an earlier stage of that, of that process.
4: Yes. Well, basically, we, we gather all the sound together uh, and, and assemble it uh, and bring it in for Andy to mix and, and make sure we have everything ready to, to be mixed.
1: I mean, obviously, everyone's talking about the the live vocals in Les Miserables. I mean, was was that a radically different challenge for you, or were there there lots of other elements that were were new to you as well?
4: Uh, It it was a a radically different uh, approach. This this is, uh, because normally with a musical, you'd record the songs in a studio before, and then you would take those pre recorded songs onto set where the actors would uh, sing along to those songs. And you'd still record the vocal on set, but you'd, you'd only use that for sync reference to, to the vocal that you'd recorded in the studio before. Uh, whereas with Les Miserables, the, the vocal that they recorded on set was the actual vocal that we used. The benefit of that meant that the actors had the freedom to, to be able to take a moment, to be able to act the scene, rather than having to uh, follow a sort of pre, you know, predestined path.
1: Do you just produce the one mix that is a a standard mix, or do you have to have different ones for different cinema sound systems?
3: You do, but uh, we we created one. The the actual mix we created on this film was a a, a 7.1, which is uh, the standard cinema sound of three speakers behind the screen and surround speakers. And in this system, they had two different types of surround speakers one on the side, one on the back. And we, we used it because it's a, it's a great format to open out. It, it sort of opens out the soundscape a little bit. So we tried a little bit of different sound of the orchestra and the sides to the back so we could get depth to the sound. And quite often on a, on a dramatic film, I'll use music only in the sides and sound effects in the back to, to sort of do it. But, but obviously with this film, it's a little different because the music was really the whole mix was the music so in a way why, why leave two speakers empty when you could use it so we, we filled the room up with the music and, um, and then you just create uh, from that format that's kind of the biggest format and then from that we created a 5.1 which is just single surround speakers and then a, an optical soundtrack which is a backup system and then obviously the DVD track gets made from that and so really the one main mix is, is becomes the master for the whole soundtrack release.
1: I'm here with Lois Bearwell who's a makeup artist on the film Lincoln. Congratulations on this nomination, and you've also been Bafta nominated in the past for Saving Private Ryan and and Braveheart. So, so you're you're used to the setup here.
5: I suppose yes and no. You never get used to it because it's it's sort of so alien from the work you do. This is rather like being in a film, and what we actually do is work on films. And uh,
1: yeah, So when you were working on Lincoln, uh, you, you had to transform Daniel Day-Lewis into, you know, certainly for Americans, one of the most recognisable figures uh, yeah. in, in their history. How did you start out on that? And, and I guess you must have done a lot of research.
5: Oh yes, huge amount of research. Um, we really looked at every picture of Abraham Lincoln you can imagine, particularly towards the end you know, of his life, and because that was the period that the film covers mainly. And then we had a life cast of him, in fact. That we got from a collector so that was interesting so you could actually feel the shape of Abraham Lincoln's face and that's that that's informative but then basically we threw away every picture put them in a drawer because then you're looking at the person in front of you and the whole idea is to make Daniel Day-Lewis become Abraham Lincoln not do a look-alike in that sort of unnatural way so really what we were looking for was a makeup. That fulfilled Steven Spielberg's vision, which was obviously the iconic figure of Lincoln, but worked on Daniel Day-Lewis and didn't impede him each day for too long. You know, sitting in a makeup chair for three hours wasn't on the cards. It wasn't going to happen.
1: You've worked a lot with, uh, with Steven Spielberg uh, yes. in, the, in, in the past as well. Is there normally a point where you, where you join a project uh, early on? And uh, is, is the director often very involved in, in what you're doing?
5: That's really hard fun to answer, actually, to be perfectly honest. So, yes, I mean, I knew that Lincoln was coming up. And although you're not on the payroll, obviously, if you've, if you've got your wits about you, what you're actually going to do is start work before you're paid to start work so that you have all that research and knowledge and familiarity familiarity with the subject under the belt and then you can move on from there. So you get a head start. Stephen, I had one meeting with Stephen before we began filming and then he gave me the rundown of how he wanted people to look, which was make them look right. So then you make them look right and at the fittings I'd take a photograph and actually email them to him and then it would be yes, no or is he meant to look like that? You know, there's always that kind of thing.
1: And, and, and in terms of a brief, like, do, and did you get a very different brief on, on some of these other films, like Saving Private Ryan or, or War of the Worlds or, or Catch Me? Saying, saying make them look right, I suppose, it like cover, covers most eventualities.
5: Yes, it does. I mean, it does. It, it's, sort of, it's sort of nebulous, but actually it goes straight to the heart and the point. And, of course, there's, there's a sort of shorthand, because I mean, I can't imagine the first time I worked with Stephen, him saying... Make them look right. I, they, it, it was a, a whole different conversation then. But of course, you get, you, you get to a point of familiarity where that's it, that's the instruction, and you go from there because there's an understanding. And that's what's great about working with the same group because you all up the bar for each other. There's a shorthand, there's an understanding. You know each other's frailties, you know each other's strengths, and you can compensate. For both. So it's really good.
1: Who are the other key collaborations on a production, including in your own department
5: and and with others? My best friend is obviously Janusz Kaminski, because ultimately he's going to capture the look and make it work or not. I mean, you can either destroy or not make something, but you can help it most definitely with lighting and angles and those kind of things. And um, Janusz is wonderful. We always watch rushes together. Um, and sometimes that means five hours on a Friday night because we haven't had time to watch them during the week because of the working day. So we'll, we'll just sit there at weekends or, or normally on a Friday night and watch the week's rushes together. And he's really collaborative. He's very good and helpful. Obviously, I work hand-in-glove with Joanna Johnson, pardon the pun, because she's costume. <laughs> you know, we obviously have to work together because if you end up with you know you've got someone in a wig and the hat's too tight they're going to take the hat off and take the wig off with it so you know or buttons and beards that's always a nightmare fake beards and buttons big round shiny ones getting caught in a long beard horrible so yes we we work collaboratively and actually Rick Carter because he has you know he's he's designing the sets he's the production designer So we work together, I go and see all his designs and what he's going to do, so I get a sense of the colour and how the colour of the set is going to affect the skin tones
1: this is a question that has occurred uh, this has occurred to me literally as as we've been talking if you're if you've got if you're putting on uh, like it's one of these sort of lengthy or perhaps prosthetic uh, makeup things do you have to have a lot to talk to the actor about while they're doing that and like because again you know even when I'm having my hair cut they will start with are you going away nice on holiday but you must need a lot of conversation or like is there an understanding that you don't have to keep talking through the whole (laughs) like hour or so it might take Uh,
5: actually work in silence so that's very interesting you would say that because the difference between i mean unless an actor talks to me i will say good morning obviously and if there's something that needs to be addressed about the work then obviously i do that first up so you address whatever the work needs are initially and some people don't don't. I mean, we can be hideously early in the morning, you know. They don't want someone bright and chipper and asking you going on holiday. It's not hairdressers. I mean, it really isn't. Every day, every morning, every, every morning there's a Yeah. I mean, you don't want to be irritating, and so and and well, on, on this film on Lincoln, I mean, we worked in silence anyway because obviously I'm English, sort of a distraction when Daniel was is English himself and is playing an American, so. It, it actually worked perfectly because I could be in my comfort zone. Because the thing is, and I don't know if it's true of all makeup people, but actually, if I have to speak while I'm doing makeup, I lose the, the, the thread of where I am. And it takes me a moment to actually get back into it. But my hands sort of know what I'm doing and then you just, you know, it's not, not, a, not a dream state because obviously you're really concentrating on what you're doing, but you let go of, of dialogue. So, I like to work in silence. Yep. Lois, th- thanks ever so much and, uh, and enjoy the awards. Thank you, you're welcome. It's, it's wonderful, it's really exciting, actually.
1: So, with me is Fred Raskin, the editor of Django Unchained. First of all, Fred, uh Django Unchained references a lot of other films and, and genres. I mean, did you look to specific films to to find your
6: style for, for editing the film? You know, I, I went back and watched all of Quentin's movies before starting this. I did watch a lot of movies in preparation for, and even while shooting was going on, a lot of movies that I know influenced Quentin. Primarily like Sergio Corbucci's Spaghetti Westerns. The, that was the main thing. But, and there were a handful of movies that Quentin himself screened for us early on um, movies like The Scalp Hunters and Skin Game uh, and um, Charlie One Eye that that were westerns concerning a slave and a white man or a slave and an Indian uh, American Indian teaming up now that said I watched all that stuff I don't know how much those in particular influenced the editing style of the movie because the movie really is a Quentin Tarantino film and so it, for me it was much more valuable watching what they had done before trying to maintain continuity from that to this. So how hands-on is a director like
1: Quentin Tarantino in the editing process? Like, and Robert Rodriguez, for instance, like, will often edit his own films. <laughs> so,
6: but like, I, I assume you have a bit more freedom than that. A little bit. Um, I mean, Quentin is incredibly hands-on. Like He really knows what he wants. You can look at his footage and have a pretty good sense as to how it's going to come together. I think if he knew how to use an Avid, <laughs> he probably would have just kicked me aside every once in a while. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he, he's very specific as far as what he wants.
1: At the same time, do, do you look at the film and think, oh, actually there are edits that I, I had the idea for this, or, you know, between us, we collaborated. Have you, have you got
6: any favourite shots in that respect? <laughs> I'll tell you uh, this is probably my favorite story from from uh, cutting the movie I had a great idea what I thought was a great idea when, when um, we're doing the scene in which uh, Schultz is sitting by himself as they're signing over Broomhilda's papers and the next scene is Candy comes in and talks to him and, uh, and and says you're brooding about me getting the best of you and Schultz replies I was just thinking about that poor devil you fed the dogs today D'Artagnan now it wasn't in the script But I had this idea to do little flash cuts to D'Artagnan getting eaten by the dogs as Schultz is sitting there. And I was really excited to show it to Quentin when he came back from shooting. So we got to, we were about two weeks away from getting to that scene, and Quentin tells me so when we get to that scene i want to do little flash cuts to d'artagnan getting eaten by the dogs and i said can i just show you my assembly of this now so you don't think that after you left today i went and cut this together so we were definitely on the same wavelength but yeah i mean uh, which is true for a lot of the movie there are a lot of things where i think we were very much like-minded on these things i can't take credit for anything um it's really all his genius but we were definitely thinking uh, along the same lines and you've previously worked on
1: three Fast and Furious titles. Um, was, was there any, like, what, what did you learn from those?
6: That like, are, the, are the lessons that you've taken on to other projects? You know, the way those movies are made, it's a whole different animal. Um, like, Quentin doesn't even storyboard, he, he shot lists, I think, at the beginning of every day. Justin, we, there's an elaborate. Previs process before any of the action sequences are shot, where they're all mapped out with um, basically digital moving storyboards and edited together, and so we have a really good sense as to what those sequences are going to be like. In case anyone doesn't know what previs is, so that's that's in a kind of in in an effects or or uh, action-heavy movie. These like uh, well, you you can explain it. Basically, we have digital moving storyboards. Basically, each shot. It looks like a video game, basically. So every shot that's storyboarded or shot listed, and usually they'll give us multiple angles of those shots, we get a digital version of, and so we can cut a version of the sequence before a frame of footage has been shot. I don't know that I can really apply something from a Fast and Furious movie to Django, I would say if I was doing a big action movie, there are probably plenty of lessons that can be applied there. Actually, well I will say this, on the fourth one, Fast and Furious, there are three major action sequences in the movie, and two of them were prevised and one of them wasn't. The two that were prevised both came in under budget. The one that wasn't went over budget by about $2 million because all the process of figuring out what shots were going to work and, and how it was all going to go together and what we would need and what we wouldn't need had kind of already been taken care of in pre-production. Um, once the sequences were shot, they knew exactly what to shoot and the second unit directors would still give us more than what was pre but they always made sure to give us what was pre and as a result uh, I, I, th- I think it really did streamline the whole process. And so so if I were going into another big action movie certainly I would hope that those that, that the big sequences would be pre vised ahead of time and finally are there going to be other other filmmakers that,
1: that you'll be looking out for at the awards or you know other professionals perhaps from your field or another field you
6: look out for at the awards congratulate them on on what they've done that you've admired I loved Life of Pi I was really blown away by that film I wasn't expecting it to be what it was i I didn't really know what to expect when i went in it really delivered on every level so i I, both angley and tim squires as editor i mean they 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 really knocked it out of the park but i'm also I, i don't know that it was nominated for anything so i don't know that this fully but like i i love what christopher nolan did with dark knight rises um yeah there's there's plenty i mean this was a great year for movies Well thanks very much for
1: your your expertise and and tremendous enthusiasm and uh, and I, I hope you enjoy I'm sure you will enjoy the awards, that's the impression I get Thank you very much, this has been fun
7: I'm Chris Butler, I am the writer and one of the directors of the animated movie Paranorman I think on this particular project I'm a first time screenwriter, first time director And suddenly I was offered the opportunity of making my own movie and I found myself, it was early on in the process, I found myself in a room full of all the heads of department at the studio, um, a lot of whom had been in their jobs much longer than I had. And they were suddenly asking me, what do we do? And it was that moment of thinking, shit, shit. I don't... I, can I do this? I've never done this before. Why? These, these people are experts. They've been doing it all their lives. And suddenly they were all looking at me. But it was a kind of a small epiphany that when they asked me what I wanted, I knew. And I knew how to ask for it. I knew how to explain it. So I knew. I knew what I was doing. And, and I think that's when I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm a director. I can do this. Because It's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying you've suddenly got 350 crew members who are all looking to you for your your word your word is final um and that's quite intimidating
1: but actually when you get past that fear it's 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 pretty easy I'm here with uh, Colleen Atwood, costume designer, and, and you're nominated for Snow White and the, and the Huntsman. Congratulations. Thank you. What, what were the biggest challenges on the project?
8: I think the inspiration for Snow White came from so many places. Loosely, it was based on a few centuries of medieval history. And then from that, as it's interpreted through different periods of time, I liked looking at from the beginning, the turn of the century on into this century, how different artists had interpreted it, the romanticists and all these things so that was sort of my starting point and then, you know, applying strange materials that are you know, that come from the story and the character and all of that was was sort of the icing on the cake I think, you know, Snow White and the H- Huntsman was a gigantic movie it was a lot of costumes, I probably made um, 15 uh, 100 costumes for the film. So I had stuff in workrooms, my own workrooms and workrooms all over and just kind of keeping all those balls in the air and, you know, being able to make costumes of a certain level of quality and design that for a principal that you needed 10 of instead of one is a different sort of process.
1: Who are the um, key collaborators that you, you work with on a, on a production?
8: It varies from production to production, but to me, the main person who's my collaborator is the director and the actors because they're the people that are making the film with me in that sense the production design comes into play as does hair and makeup you know that sort of level begins really with the director and trying to achieve what he wants to achieve
1: and do you get a lot of feedback from actors before filming starts or is that once they're wearing the costumes and and having to act in them
8: I try to prepare costumes, so by the time they're acting in them, all those little glitches are worked out. So usually it's, it's pretty smooth by the time they're actually wearing the costumes. Are
1: there any differences that you've noticed? You, you don't have to be polite here. Are there any differences you notice noticed between uh, working in the UK with British crews or, or, or with, with American ones?
8: Well, I've worked in a lot of places in the world, and I think my two favorite places are US and UK. I mean, I think the crews here, there's different strengths and, and weaknesses in both places. But if you get the right team, you're, it's pretty straight across the board in my book. Are more
1: demands being made of costumes now that people are filming, uh, filming television in higher definition, and they're, and they're moving to these new these digital, uh, like again, high resolution digital formats in the cinema.
8: Well, I think that you know, as high def has evolved in the time that I've been doing costumes, I've noticed little tricks that work better for high def. You know how going too dark you lose the field, and you know there's certain things a shiny surface definitely that's not too shiny high def loves you know there's certain things that work well with with each thing And, and also when you're designing movies now you have to know ultimately they're going to be in high def they're going to be digital they're going to be on that kind of screen even though they're filmed on film which is you know a certain kind of beauty in itself but that's not how most people are going to see it so I always try to make it good for both and it's it's possible to do that it really depends on the lighting too it's not just high def not high def it's it's how the film is lit Out of everything you've worked on,
1: uh, do you have any favourite costumes? Would you you look back on it and go, yes, I'm most proud of that, or that that, that was a challenge that I didn't think I could solve and I could?
8: You know, I don't look back on my work in that way. I sort of look back on it as a body, and, you know, there's things that I loved about, like Alice in Wonderland and how much fun I had with the costumes. You know, sometimes little things are the things you remember, the experience of the film rather than, than the costume, like being able to go to Japan and and explore the world of memoirs of a geisha and those treats that you get to do as a designer, going shopping in Istanbul, I remember those experiences more than I do sort of the total costume. And so now
1: uh, I'm here with Ol Parker, who's the uh, writer on uh, The Best Exotic uh, Marigold Hotel. H- hello, hello, Ol, and, and congratulations on your, on your nomination, of course. Uh, morning, and um, thank
0: you very much. Yeah, it was, um, it was, I didn't actually know I'd been nominated, which was really cool. I thought just the film had, and that was great, so I rung the producer and was like, congratulations, and he was going, well, you too, and I was like, yeah,
1: but, you know, it was you, isn't it, and um, yeah, turns out it's me, so it's all good. Well, that's a, that's a nice surprise all around. Now, I mean, we've, we've had quite a lot of writers on, on the podcast in, in the past. And uh, a fascinating area that I think has come out of it is this whole issue of adaptation. And uh, it seems that so many films now are being uh, adapted from other sources. Do you, do, you, like, do you find that there's a lot of demand for that? Yeah, much more. I mean, there's much less pressure. It's
0: been a while since I wrote an original. and it's going to be a while till I have the time to do another one. Lots of the things that producers, the producers used to go, do you have any ideas? Or we have an idea maybe about, you know, some Sheffield miners that take their clothes off, whereas now they're much more likely to send you a book or an
1: article. It's going to be from something. It's going to be adapted, yes. And so do you find that the skills that are required in adaptation are quite different to if you're producing, if you're putting together a script of from an original idea I don't know about skills but it's much better it's great
0: (laughs) someone's done a whole lot of work for you and even if you go off at a tangent from that what they've done even if you decide that's not quite working for whatever reason you're going to do your own thing there's always something to come for a start it's easier to go somewhere if you're going from somewhere if that makes any sense so you can think oh no that's wrong but this is right which is much easier than just staring at a blank page or a blank screen but also you you have something to come back to you have a kind of structure you go oh right they got that bit right or that bit works for me
1: and so um, yeah it's much easy i love it and do you think it's possible to practice the the skills of adapting something or should people still start out producing their own like original ideas
0: that's a very good question. I think you should start out producing original ideas because it's only through l- try- gradually, hopefully learning what works and what doesn't work, that you then start to read books. I mean, I find it very difficult to read books now without switching off that part of my brain that's going, oh, I'd cut him, I'd amalgamate those characters, I'd move that to the end or whatever. And so, um, But all of that comes with experience that I think you probably... Need to gain from having written originals first. I'd be very surprised if someone—it's very unlikely you're going to get a gig. I think adapting unless you've done something original. But I'd be very surprised if someone came out of the gate with a really brilliant adaptation first off. So what's what's next for you? All? Uh, well, next I'm actually doing uh, another adaptation just to prove your point. But I'm also uh, I've, I'm working on the sequel to uh, *Marigold Hotel*, which is a surprise to us if we would had any idea when we were uh, making the original that uh, the first one that there would be a sequel we wouldn't have wrapped up the loose ends quite so aggressively <laughs> at the conclusion of the first one but um, yeah it's exciting
1: So time now for our regular look at the BAFTA Notice Board. The film awards mark the start of BAFTA's busy awards season. Check out BAFTA.org for backstage interviews with all the winners from the night. Next month it's the British Academy Games Awards. You can check out all the content online around the ceremony on the 5th of March. We'll also have a special BAFTA podcast featuring all the backstage action. We heard from Paranorman director Chris Butler earlier. The man responsible for the film's look, Tristan Oliver, is holding a stop-frame cinematography masterclass in Exeter on Saturday 23rd of February as part of the Animated Exeter Festival. We've got more craft masterclasses coming up around the UK as well, so keep an eye on BAFTA.org for details. On February 25th, we're holding a special event for producers, distributors and scriptwriters about breaking the growing independent family films market. It'll be chaired by the BFI's Justin Johnson, and it's taking place here at BAFTA HQ in London. Tickets are only £7.50. And that's almost all we've got time for. Remember, you can get all the latest news and upcoming BAFTA events by signing up for our fortnightly newsletter on BAFTA.org and on Twitter at BAFTAGuru. If you've been inspired by any of the topics described in this podcast, or if you have any feedback, please get in touch at podcast at BAFTA.org. But before we go, let's hear one last time from our guests, each in passing a little nugget of wisdom about filmmaking.
8: Be enthusiastic, but not too pushy. My heart goes out to them because I think the time that you're allowed to prepare films is shrinking and shrinking, so the job's going to get more and more intense.
5: Learn set etiquette, learn the craft. And continue to learn the craft.
2: Um, watch everything you possibly can. Watch a lot of films. That's important. To understand the references.
7: Personally, I sat and watched, slavishly watched, every Hitchcock movie ever made. And this was someone, you know, who storyboarded a lot of his own movies, and I, that's how I started out in storyboarding. So I, you know, literally just sat there in front of a TV and watched and rewatched these great films and and broke them apart in my own mind so I think it's like drinking it in you know consuming as much as possible of what's out there that's the best way to to learn I think
0: my basic daily routine is that I get up and make a cup of tea probably a bacon sandwich and then try and read the entire internet before starting work, and there's a program called Freedom that turns off your internet for the duration of time that you set it for, and you can't get it back on. Uh, and that's incredibly. Without that, I would have no writing career whatsoever. So I, that's my top tip to all writers.
5: It's enthusiasm. I mean, I learn something new every single film. If I don't, then I really I want to you know stop because there's no interest there. But you have to love what you do and know why you're doing it. I mean, if you're doing it because you're working with famous people, then don't bother. I went to art school and I studied
2: fine art and painting and sculpture, and that has proven to be hugely useful to me in my career. Visual effects and filmmaking brings together so many different ideas and influences. But the main thing is to is to pursue an aspect of it that you think you're going to actually enjoy because the things you enjoy are the things that you're going to do the work the hardest at. And when you're stuck there at three in the morning trying to work out why the computer won't do something for you, it's the fact that you actually are passionate about what you're doing that keeps you going.
5: Well I think the most important thing particularly from the makeup is that you really should be invisible because You go in and are touching the actor within their space right up until the moment of delivering that performance. So you have to be invisible. And to learn how to do that, and to learn
8: not to be present, I think is really hard, actually. I'd say put your money in the front row and, you know, keep going. (laughs) And (laughs) by
1: put your money, what, what do you mean by...?
8: Well, because... If you have a limited amount of money you have to put the money on the actors that are that you're going to see seen? and and not get lost in the fear of the other 200 people but also I think that you have to be aware that the detail in a costume around the face and that part of the body is very important because you're always pretty much going to have a close up and if something looks nasty in a close up you kind of You sort of lost. You've lost the battle. And be as personable as you can. A lot of working in the industry is about
6: maintaining relationships, and uh, I mean, I was an assistant editor on the Kill Bill movies, and uh, Quentin and I got along really well. I think he appreciated my love of cinema. Certainly, it is nowhere near, my knowledge of cinema is nowhere near as vast as his own, which gave him the opportunity to introduce me to a number of things, and, and, uh, and I think that that is something that he enjoyed, but we always stayed in touch, and I would see him, you know, he owns a, um, a movie theater uh, revival house in Los Angeles that I would see him at Probably a couple times a year uh, in the intervening years after the Kill Bill movies. And so we would always chat and, uh, and he kept me kind of in the family so that when he did rough cut screenings of both Death Proof and Inglorious Bastards, he invited me to them just to kind of see what I thought. So, you know, had I not been able to maintain that relationship, I might not be sitting here with you today.
1: Thanks for listening. My name's still Dave Green. The producer was Matt Hill with the help of John Maloney and Katie Campbell. Now stop listening to podcasts and go and actually make that thing you're always going on about. Bye.